Beloved, I'm Mike Sherrod. I'm also one of the pastors here at Trinity. And we, our text this morning is from John chapter 11. It's printed for you in the bulletin. I need to explain, though, but because we're going to start reading in the middle of a story, a little bit like starting to watch a baseball game in the seventh inning. So let me just tell you what's happened in the first six innings in this story in John 11. Jesus has two, uh, has three friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, and Lazarus is dying. And Mary and Martha know what to do. They send word to find Jesus because they know if Jesus comes, without question, Jesus can heal Lazarus. He does not come. He deliberately delays so that the glory of God might be displayed in what he is about to do. And so when he arrives at the tomb, it's been four days. That means Lazarus is dead, dead, really dead. So we pick up in the text as Jesus nears the place where they buried Lazarus and Mary comes out to meet him. So Luke 11, beginning at verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. If you were given a real bona fide choice this morning of leaving this space through this door into an existence of pure, unbridled, unassaultable peace, prosperity, pleasure, and plenty. Not an, uh, ever an opportunity for sorrow, sickness, pain, death, greed, suffering. No possibility. You're given a choice of leaving the room into that existence or going through There's these doors at the end of the service into the status quo, more the same. Death, suffering, corruption, pollution, greed, evil, people killing each other, cheating each other. Which would you choose? Well, it's very easy. 
We would all, whether we're atheist, agnostic, skeptic, no matter what religion we belong to, we would innately, unhesitatingly, choose to go into an existence that was like paradise. Why? Because you know in your heart of hearts the mess we currently occupy in our lives is not the way it's supposed to be. That's why all human beings, regardless of their religious or non-religious convictions, are outraged at injustice, unfairness, greed, all the junk we all want to label as evil and wrong. We're all equally outraged about it because we know this is not the way it's supposed to be. And God agrees with you. And this story shows you what Jesus Christ has come to do about the status quo. I don't know if you noticed, but there's very strong language used to describe Jesus' reaction when he sees his friends Mary and Martha weeping and when he sees the tomb. In fact, this is a portrait of Jesus in his most undone emotional state. We're told in verse 33 that he was moved in spirit. Literally, in the original language, it means to snort with anger. I hope this doesn't sound offensive, but this is what he did. That sounds funny. But something so horrifying moved Jesus to snort with anger. And it says he was troubled. It literally means to shake. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. This is not crocodile tears. This isn't just a little, this is bawling his eyes out. Unsurprising, because like you, when a loved one dies, you're full of anger, tear, strong emotion. But surprisingly, we see this raw emotion from Jesus because Jesus knows in about two minutes he's going to raise Lazarus from the tomb. So what's the deal? If I were Jesus, I would show up and go, chill, everybody be calm, watch me perform a miracle. I'm going to raise him from the dead. There's nothing to worry about. He does not do that. We see this raw emotion in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to answer the question, why? What does this tell you about God's commitment to put an end to everything that's wrong about this life, everything is, that is not the way it's supposed to be? Let me answer the question with um, three reasons Jesus is so angry and undone. Number one, he lost a friend. When your loved ones die, you weep. He's filled with sympathy. He grieves as man of sorrows with their loss. It's like the sight of Mary and Martha and their grief. It's a sledgehammer that hits Jesus' heart and out pops all this strong emotion. The Lord Jesus Christ is the most compassionate man that ever walked the face of the earth. If you don't know Jesus, oh, would you get to know this man who's more compassionate than anyone you know. It's no wonder the psalmist tells us that the Lord captures your tears in his bottle. 
the psalmist declares that God is near the brokenhearted. And those tears that we have shed over the griefs and sorrows and pains and agonies in our lives, Jesus says one day he will wipe, he will take his hanky, he will wipe every tears from your eyes. In an existence, we won't even know what tears will be. I don't think we're going to need tear ducts in the new heavens and the new earth. Why is Jesus angry? He lost a friend. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Secondly, Jesus is angered at death. He's standing before a tomb. Momentarily, they'll roll the stone away and the stench of death will fill the air. So Jesus is staring at death. It infuriates him. He hates death. Death should not be in the lovely world he created. It is not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus created a world brimming with life that was to go on and on and on in eternal happiness and peace and glory. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. It no more belongs in this creation than toxic waste in your kitchen, beloved. God didn't build a world for disease, destruction, death, and the devil. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And actually, it isn't death per se that so angers Jesus. It's the reason death is in this world. And what is that? Sin. Paul tells us in Romans 5.23 that sin entered this world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. In the Lord's pristine creation, no sin, no death. Adam and Eve sin, death comes in instantly and spoils the creation. So it repulses Jesus to think about why there's death in the world, sin, and what is sin? It's that God gave himself to Adam and Eve, enjoy, savor, delight in my glory and in my ways. And they said, no, thank you. We'll find human glory on our own terms. We don't want to live for your glory. We want to live for our own. That moves Jesus to anger and tears. Sin kills the glory for which God made you. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And here's the way I want you to think of sin. Anything you think, say, or do that is not consciously, intentionally, and robustly done according to God's precepts for God's pleasure and for his praise, that's sin. That means you and I have sinned thousands of times in the last week. God requires Everything you think, say, and do to be according to his precepts, for his pleasure, and to the praise of his glory. Oh, my goodness. We are laden with sin and guilt, beloved. Any failure to do that is not the way it's supposed to be. Thirdly, why is Jesus shuddering with anger? Why does he weep? Why does he, uh, uh, why does he snort with anger? He's no doubt trembling, trembling at the thought of his own tomb. It's just a matter of days that his body, he knows this, his body will be laid in a tomb on Good Friday. 
5 o'clock in the afternoon or whenever. This tomb reminds him of that, and it's not the tomb per se that is so distressing to Jesus. It is the path he will take to that tomb. What will happen between this moment, pure, sinless, glorious God in the flesh? What will happen between this moment for Jesus and his body's laid in the tomb? What stands between these two points? His cross. This causes him to shudder, to weep, because he will suffer unspeakable miscarriages of justice, pain, mocking, scorn. He will literally be punched out. His head will be bloodied, skin broken from the crown of thorns. They will whip his back to shreds. There's probably very few area of unscathed skin on Jesus' back. He's deserted by his family, his friends. And worst of all, on the cross, he will face the wrath of his father pouring out judgment on the sins of those he died for. We can't imagine this. It's beyond our thinking. The father pouring his wrath into Jesus as he becomes a blob of sin on the cross. It's understandable why Jesus is so raw emotionally. Beloved, the cross is not the end of the story. There's a triumph. Jesus never came just to die. He came to live perfectly, to die, and to be raised from the dead. So he tells his disciples earlier in the chapter that the reason he's delaying is they might see the glory of God. So go back a little bit in John to to the narrative when uh, the moment Martha meets Jesus on the edge of town. What would you say if you were Martha? You knew Jesus could heal your brother. You knew somehow Jesus is delayed. What do you say to Jesus? Probably exactly what Martha said, verse 21. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. True or false? True. What does she know about Jesus? Anytime he sees brokenness, he fixes it. Anytime he sees sickness, he heals it. Anytime he sees scarcity of food, he gives them buckets of leftovers. Anytime someone is caught in demonic oppression, he sets them free. He is a man who can't keep his hands off of things that need fixing. Of course Jesus would have healed Lazarus if he was there and he was still sick. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Is this an expression of faith or a veiled rebuke? Like, where in the world have you been? It's very ambiguous. So was Jesus' response to her, verse 24. Excuse me, verse 23. Your brother will rise again. (laughs) Masterfully planned ambiguity. So Martha is thinking, I want my brother back now. 
his loss is a wound that will scar me to the day I die. I know, Jesus, there'll be a final resurrection. Just give me my brother. That's what she says in verse 24. I know that my brother will rise again on the resurrection on the last day. But she has this tone of dissatisfaction, doesn't she? See, every Bible-believing Jew knew that the end of earth's history was marked by the dead being raised. That's how earth's history is going to end. Everyone who's ever died, their body is going to be raised. So you see that illustrated in Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will rise Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake, shout for joy. The earth will give birth to departed spirits, predicting the final resurrection. Likewise, we could do more. I'll just one more for you. Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. What does Jesus do with uh, this event in the future that all the bodies will be raised? He even said earlier in John 12, the day is coming when the Son of Man will cry and everybody will be raised. What does Jesus do with this event? He fills it with his own glory. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. You don't have to wait to the end of time to see the glory of final resurrection. It's standing right in front of you. I'm the resurrection and the life. It's important to know this about the Greek language. There are two words for life. Bios. Some of you have studied biology. It's the study of life. Everyone in this room has bios because you're breathing. It's not what he's talking about. Zoe. That's the Greek word for indestructible life. You can't destroy it. It will never change. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. I have in me indestructible life. And he proved it by conquering the grave. So do you see what he does? By raising Lazarus at this moment, he imports into the present the glory of that great day when all bodies will be raised. And so that when Jesus yells, come forth, what exactly happens? Something that never happened in the history of the world. In the history of the world, every single person that had died, how many do you think had lived up until this point in world history? A billion people? I have no idea. Just call it a billion. In every case, they died and death went like this. Gotcha. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. A billion times death went, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And Jesus says, come forth. And, and death goes, whoa, I don't gotcha. Lazarus broke death's grip. A picture of the third day when Jesus would rise and conquer the grave. A promise that if you believe in Jesus and he is your resurrection and life, you will be raised on the last day. And your death in this body will be but a passing into the presence of Jesus. And Jesus' resurrected body is a paradigm of your future. When Jesus appears in the resurrection appearances to his disciples and said, you see this? He's saying, this is your future. A body that can't sin, ever get sick, sorrow, or die. This is the future. Jesus is saying, the future is now in me. I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. So, beloved, Jesus is calling you today out of the tomb. See, if... if, if If you sinned, there's a sense in which you're in the tomb with Lazarus. You're just like Lazarus. And he's calling every one of you to himself out of the tomb. I want to close the sermon with a little bit of autobiographical experience and just give you a tidbit of my spiritual journey. 
here's the way I lived for years and years and years. I was a churchgoer, so you could say I was religious. But I fundamentally lived as if I'd made a bargain with God. Me with him, not him with me. Here was the bargain. If you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. Anybody relate to that? I mean, if, if you don't consciously, rarely ever, think, say, or do everything for God's glory, that's the way you're living. You're living as if you want God to keep his grubby hands off your life. That's the way I live. I even went to church. I even wore my Fellowship of Christian Athletes t-shirt under my shoulder pads in high school football. But I lived as if I didn't want God as my Lord. You know what's true about that? I could not have possibly seen how beautiful God was or I never would have lived that way. If I knew the depth, the sweetness, the loveliness of the love of God for me, I never would have lived that way. Phase two, I got more moral. I started, do, started doing better things and stopped doing bad things which was essentially just dressing up the walls of the tomb with my good efforts. Oh, oh, I, I didn't do that bad. Oh, I did this. Here's my grade point average. Here's a couple of athletic accomplishments. There weren't many of those, those believe me. Uh, well, I tried to do a little something for my neighbor here. I was just dressing up the tomb with little religious activities, still in the tomb. What did I fail to realize? I failed to realize that if I wanted a relationship with God, if I wanted to make a claim on paradise the moment I died, if I wanted to be accepted by God, I failed to realize I couldn't possibly give God what he required. It's like if I came out of the tomb to be right with God, it's I had $10 in my hand and what God required was $10 trillion. I don't have it. We all fall so far short. Plus... If I came out of the tomb to be in a relationship with God, what about my sin? I had nowhere to hide my sin. And here's what you must know about the nature of reality in the world God created. That God is just and he's righteous and wherever there is sin, it will inexorably be punished. Every single sin ever committed in the history of the universe draws the wrath of God and punishment. Every sin. Must be punishment. So I've, if I came out of the tomb trying to be right with God, I was going to hell. And then good news was shared with me. Mike, have you heard about the substitute? Have you heard about Jesus Christ and what he's done for helpless, sinful people? That Jesus Christ came to earth to live under the law of God and fulfill every single requirement of it so that if you ask him, he will credit you with his perfect righteousness. You can come out of the tomb and go, I'm righteous, just as Jesus is. It's hard to believe, but it's true. And what about my sin? Well, Jesus says, I died to remove it. That's why he bore the wrath of God for all who trust in Jesus God's wrath is spent. I love the way the apostle Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, Christ died the just for the unjust. Who's the unjust? You. Me. Who's the just? The perfect Jesus. Christ died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. 
The only safe way to come to God, to come out of the tomb, is hidden in Jesus Christ. One with Jesus Christ. That's why, that's why Jesus says to Mary and Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And so you're right with God. You're accepted by God. You're justified in God's. You can be guaranteed there's no condemnation if you're one with Jesus Christ by faith. And so salvation is, has to be a gift. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So when you hear, by grace you've been saved, what should you insert in that, by, behind that word grace? The righteousness of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what saves helpless sinners. Jesus, he's the grace of God. He's the gift of God. So how do you get a gift? You just receive it. Empty worthless, helpless hands. And Jesus is giving it to you today, beloved. Please don't leave. You're going out into the status quo. <laughs> this world isn't changing until he comes again. But you don't have to leave without the gift. Ask Jesus to give you the faith. Ask Jesus to help you believe. Ask Jesus to make the gift yours. Believe in him. Repent of your sins. Take him, oh my. It's a gift. He gives himself to you. Okay, finally, what are people like when they receive a gift? I know what I'm like. When I get something I really like as a gift, I'm giddy. Woo! The Bible calls that joy. People who are certain of their final resurrection because they trust the triumph of Jesus over sin and death have joy. You receive a gift, what else are you? You are humbled by that gift. You feel undeserving. The Bible calls that humility. It's often, boys and girls, you get a gift. Are you excited? I got that new fill in the blank. You're excited. The Bible calls that gratitude. Thank you, thank you, thank you. My whole life is a sacrifice of thanksgiving for the wonder of what Jesus has done to me. You get a gift, what do you want to do? Go use it. Got a bike for Christmas one year. What was the first thing I did when we finished opening presents? Hopped on it and rode in the neighborhood. You want to use it. The Bible calls that fruitfulness. Spending your life serving others and Jesus being fruitful for his name. And finally, you get a new gift. Sometimes it's invigorating, invigorating. The Bible calls that resurrection power. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in the hearts of all who believe in his promise to save them. It is power to overcome sin. It's power to overcome selfishness, self-protection, self-promotion, self-indulgence. It is the only power on earth to save you from yourself. Resurrection power. It is power to live for God's glory. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, risen Savior, conqueror of death and all opposing might. May your resurrection power fill our hearts right now. May it create faith, spiritual sight, trust, 
hope, peace, confidence, joy, humility, gratitude, fruitfulness. And we live as those who declare in word, thought, and deed, this is the way it's supposed to be to the praise of the glory of your grace. Amen.